Yes.
the first thing going on is grammar. So as a school teacher, let me, let me help out a little bit here. So notice the first thing is the action of making something holy or declaring something to be holy. Presto, holy. It's made holy. The thing is now done. It is holy, right? What's the second definition imply or state? That it's an action or a process of being freed from sin. So I think part of the issue here is um, the second issue is what holy means. Right. And I think a lot of Christians may be misdefining this word. Yeah, because oftentimes people define holy, which equals perfect. And since God is holy, so we assume holy equals perfect. But the Bible says no one is perfect. That's exactly right. Other than Jesus. Yeah. Right. Right. So let's go to the next slide. Let's talk about what truly, I'm sorry, what holy truly means. So holy, ready? Dedicated or consecrated to God or to a religious purpose sacred. If, leave it up there, please. If, if I asked you if you were perfect, how many of you would raise your hand? There's no... What, there's yeah, I better no not hand. see any hands. If I ask you if you <laughs> not are even you, dedicated Jordan. to God, how many of you would raise your hands? See the difference, right? So if we go around thinking holy means perfect, we're, we live with a life kind of of a mindset of defeat. If we look at the idea that we are to be holy, and this is the definition, that we are dedicated to or we are consecrated to God or to a religious purpose, we are sacred, that's a lot easier for us to understand. Agreed? That's where we're coming from. So, but how does this all happen in, in, with a Christ follower? Yeah. This is where the rubber meets the road, guys. I mean, this is what the whole preach is about. It comes together with the topic of sanctification. Let's look at Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 14. Starting in verse 10, for God's will, you ready? Mind's blown. I mean, when we read scripture, we ought to slow down. Sometimes I think we read too fast. I got to get through my chapter today. Just listen to this one verse. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Mm. That verse alone blows your mind. One time for all. Be made holy by the sacrifice. So based on the first definition, he made you holy by his sacrifice. The passage goes on. Here's why it wasn't working. Under the old covenant, a priest would stand and minister before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, who's that? He offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. And then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. I love this. This is what Tina brought a word prophetically last week. There he waits. Where? In the place of honor at God's right hand. Who waits? Christ. Christ is waiting at the right hand. He waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. Hmm. The old sacrifice didn't work. We needed a new way. The new way is Jesus. His death, his sacrifice on the cross made a way. And now he waits for the end. Verse 14 says, for by that one offering, he forever made, past tense, done. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Hmm. Wait a minute. That verse says we are perfect. 
and we are being made holy. Come on. <laughs> what do you is, got there? That is the sanctification verse. You want to know what sanctification is? There's the verse. Through the person of Jesus and his sacrifice, it was done once and for all time. And by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Hmm. Here's the big idea. If you have accepted and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then this statement pertains to you and it pertains to me. You've been made perfect and you are being made holy. Imagine it this way. When you enter into a saving relationship with the King, Jesus, he gives you a new outfit. Royal robes. Royal robes, same kind he wears. A robe of royalty. And when you put on that outfit, when God sees you, he sees a perfect you. You've been adopted as a son or a daughter of the king, and you've been given royal robes to show it. However, there's a great video that you got to look for. It's, it's about Toby. It's Monica's favorite video, I think. So Toby is this guy who was walking on earth, and he didn't know that he was royalty, and suddenly he did a DNA test, and he found out that he was actually royalty. And so he met with the king, and the king gave him a ring, and the king put an outfit on him, and Toby turns around and goes, yes, I am royalty, and then he picks a booger and he flicks it away. <laughs> That's forever, I know. <laughs> so wait a minute. Because he did that, he's obviously not royalty, right? <laughs> Wrong, yeah. right? He's, he's, royal. he's just not acting like royalty. Same kind of idea here. At the risk of mixing our metaphors, you with me? He, wore, he's, he is royalty. The DNA test proved it. He is a child of the king, but he's not acting like a child of the king, right? So at the risk of mixing our metaphors, I have something here that I really think is going to help us grasp the big idea about sanctification. We're going we're gonna to be talking about David, and we're going to be talking about Michelangelo a little bit. And um, we have a prop here that I think is going to... I'm going to put it by... Whoa. I'm going to put it right by Chuck. What's going on here? I don't know if I'd ever would have agreed to this if uh, this was going on. I totally understand, okay. and uh, I get it. But you know what? We, I know I just pulled you way out of your comfort zone. You're, you're probably not the only one in this room out of their comfort zone right now. Pray hard, but um, I appreciate Bear with me for just a moment. All right. Does anybody know who this is? David, right? This is the marble statue of David. It is literally one of the world's most famous works of Renaissance art. It was carved by a man over a three-year period during the early 16th century. He was born in 1575, and he, paint, he, he, was, um, he sculpted this between the ages of 26 and 29 years old. Um, it's really a work of art. I don't know if any of you have seen it in person. It's a 17 and a half feet tall. Um, it stands in... Florence in the center of the dome. It was meant to go 230 feet up in the air in a niche in that cathedral, but it ended up weighing, I can't remember, like 12,000 pounds, and it was a little bit heavy to get all the way up there. So, but that's why some of the, um, uh, like his hand, his right hand is very large, right? The perspective is a little bit off. His arm is really large. If you're looking at him from 230 feet on the ground and up, he looks perfect. So this is some of the explanation. This is really a work of art. Does anybody know who the artist was? Did I say it already? Yeah. Who was it? 
Michelangelo. Listen, at 21 years of age, at 21, at 13, he became an apprentice because he wasn't going to go into the family business. At 21, he was selected. Sydney, can we get the next slide? At 21, he was chosen to go choose, choose the marble and carve the pieta. This is in Rome, in the Vatican. He carved that from the ages of 21 to 23. At 23, he moved on to carve David. And then he painted the Sistine Chapel from the ages of 33 to 37, spending four years on his back. Now, if that were hanging on your wall, it would be impressive. But that, that painting is the size, it's larger than this building. This building's, I'm assuming, like 3,500 square feet. That's over 5,000 square feet. It's 300 figures. So Michelangelo, can you, can you see creator? Amazing genius, artistic genius. Make sense? Okay. Well, I'm at the at the risk of sounding <laughs> a little ingenuous here, what's this got to do with sanctification? All right. So somebody supposedly once asked Michelangelo, the great artist, how could you possibly sculpt such a perfect David? And he replied, "It's easy. I simply chip away the stone that isn't David." See, the statue of David began as this huge misshapen block of Carrera marble. It was over 15 feet high. It weighed in at 12,000 pounds. And two other artists had actually already started trying to carve this, and they had failed and walked away from it. There was a huge hole between David's legs where the two legs were going to end up being when he got it. But anyway, look, just imagine two refrigerator boxes standing on top of each other. That's what he started with. But the artist is able to see David in there already existing. And then he begins this process of just chipping away at all the stone, all the stuff that wasn't David. In much the same way, God is the master sculptor, right? And he looks at us and he sees this little Christ, the little Christ that we are. And he still, despite that, he still goes to work chipping away at all the stuff that isn't the little Christ. And so in this way, this describes sanctification. We are David, and we are becoming David. Make sense? What's really interesting to me is how God does this in partnership with us. He's the creator of the universe. He made every star in the sky. Like, he could just go, you are perfect, and he's made us perfect already, but then why doesn't he just finish the sanctification process like that? That's a deeper theological issue. Matt's probably going to preach on that later. <laughs> but this is what the second part of our message is all about today. It's about this sanctification process. Last week, I promised you some practical stuff. So we've covered some pretty deep theology so far. Hopefully, it makes sense, the concept of sanctification. But now we're going to introduce you to what Chuck and I have been actively involved in doing here together at Westside over the past couple of years. The Bible says that God called David a man after his own heart one who seeks to do everything God wants him to. That definition comes right out of the New Testament when I think it was Peter is describing um, David. So why was he a man after God's own heart? Didn't mean he was perfect. We all know David messed up, right? But he did everything God wants him to do. A whole nother preach would be, well, then why did he do some stuff God didn't want him to do? Like he did everything God wanted him to do, but he obviously did some stuff God didn't want him to do. Okay, sorry, that's a freebie. Anyway, Chuck and I realized that we both have this desire to be like David in this way. We want to do everything God wants us to do. 
and we absolutely believe that God brought us together in what has become a really interesting example of sanctification in action. So can we share this with you? He likes his mic. Yeah, I like this one. <laughs> yeah, Ty and I, we started meeting and realizing we were brothers in Christ and knowing that we loved Jesus and wanted to be like him. This was our foundation. And I had a hunch that if we met consistently with one another and shared openly our struggles and prayed for each other and reached out midweek to spur one another on, then we'd find ourselves living lives that were more fulfilled and empowered, energized, and aligned with Christ. Yeah, we really just wanted to be nothing more than a perfect reflection of Jesus. That's all. Is this working? Is it working? Oh. Okay, maybe I hold my hand right there. Uh, we just wanted to be a perfect reflection of Jesus, that's all. And uh, we knew that we honestly weren't. Can you relate? Okay. Yeah, anyway, as Ty and I kept meeting, our friendship grew and our lives took on a new energy. And knowing one another and being known by each other proved to be something that our souls were missing. It's easy to have surface relationships, ones that discuss the weather, work, hobbies, you know, easy things. It's tougher to determine to go deep, but when we did... We found that our connection became even stronger and more meaningful. And pretty soon we figured we couldn't keep this to ourselves. And we invited another man to join us, somebody who really needed Jesus. Yeah, really <laughs> needed Jesus. <laughs> and he's in here. I love okay, so the two became three. Don't look at him. He's laughing really hard. <laughs> and then the four, three became four and the four became five. And our lives, lives began to change dramatically. Like stuff got chipped away stuff got knocked off, stuff got ground down, and um, it, in these areas of our lives where we didn't perfectly resemble Christ, we, and we did develop these deeper relationships, and we, we prayed for each other, and we sharpened each other, and we knew that we just had to keep this going. Yeah, and then, then you left, and uh, <laughs> just like that, one group became two, and then over the course of the next year, the two be have become six. And lives, like Ty said, are changing slowly but surely. Praise God. So what Chuck and I are trying to do this morning is share with uh, you some of what's been going on and some of what we've learned through this experience with these small groups. I believe that we've seen four key uh, principles kind of emerge over the last couple years. And these points aren't just for men, but they're points for anybody, young, old, male, female, single, married. So um, the first thing that we think is really foundational to everything else Hopefully, you're kind of already hearing it, and it's the word identity. So, Chuck, what can you share with us about identity? Who well, thanks, Ty. I thought you'd never ask. Um, <laughs> principle number one, yeah, identity. Um, I've said this before. Oftentimes, God puts single words on my heart, and uh, I think it's because he wants me to just really study them and bring those words out. And whatever the reason, he wants me to make sure that I know what those words mean, too. And that's what I'm hoping that comes across here, too. So, uh, yeah, the idea here about a couple months ago, I think, is when we really started hitting on this, uh, this premise as, as you and I were discussing and praying about what we were supposed to do or share today. Uh, God put these two words on my heart, and identity and intentionality. First, let's look at, at identity. The Webster's Dictionary defines identity as who or what a person is? And the question is, who am I? For me, and hopefully many of you, that's an easy question. I am a Christian. 
This happens when I put my hope and faith in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I am no longer like the person I was. Something profound has changed. And this comes out of I mean, first, or 2 Corinthians 5.17. God's Word says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So if you have placed your trust in Christ, this statement is true for you. My identity is also that I'm a new creation. As new creations, we begin to recognize how God works in our life and how we partner with Him, realizing that my identity is in Jesus as a new creation and reminding myself of this helps me know that I'm waking up new in Christ every day. Tell me more about this new creation. What's this new creation look like? Well, God has chosen for this new creation to be like His Son. In Romans, Paul writes, For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This is so cool. Believers in every church were called Christian, which meant little Christ. One's just like Christ. So another truth, my identity is little Christ. This is literally the definition of Christian. Now, not only as a new creation, a little Christ, but the Bible also says I'm, a, I'm God's workmanship. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we, as, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, my reiterating, my identity is God's workmanship. But here is the interesting part, Ty. Despite all these truths about who I am, I can find that thought that every day I'm waking up new in Jesus starting to wane over time. Yeah, I mean, even though we're saved, like we go through these seasons, right, where it's easy to get discouraged, uh, to get distracted. We can get off track, can't we? And we wake up in the morning just blah, Mm. instead of like our first thought being it's a new day, I'm a new creation, you know, I have Christ living in me and I'm ready to go and tackle the world. Yeah, I mean, how can we wake up new every day when we know the world can't wait to knock us down every chance it gets? I mean, it's really a new mindset I need. That's, that's what I really need, a new perspective. In Galatians 2.20, it, it says, Set, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And remembering that I'm living in Jesus and Jesus living in me allows me to see what this whole sanctification thing's all about. This whole we keep the world, this is how we keep the world from getting to us or knocking us down. I mean, that's a powerful concept, this, this idea that Christ lives in us, right? Like, it's, it's tough to grasp. I think it's easy for us to grasp the idea that, like, the way we're raised, um, we have a conscience, and, and some of the things that we kind of learn as we grow up, we, we hear like our parents' voices in our heads or something, and you know, we, we know what the speed limit is, and so maybe it's just like our upbringing that is the thing that we hear, but the Bible says Christ is in us. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is within us, and one of the challenges as a Christian is to s- figure out where does the world's voice stop and where does the Holy Spirit's voice begin? So I think that's part of a, a powerful thing to realize, that the Holy Spirit's in us and, and ready to speak. 
So now that we know that Jesus is our identity, and our identity is all about him, and if we're Christ followers, we're a new creation, if we believe in him, what else defines our identity? Well, here's another powerful truth. I am forgiven and set free from the penalty of death. John 8, 36, Jesus makes a wonderful statement of victory. He says, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And as a Christ follower, my sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. How is that possible? The only answer is Jesus. Jesus. I didn't have that highlighted, but that's what just came to me just now. Jesus is the only answer. And he came down from heaven and took on the sins of the world. He suffered, died, and was buried. But three days later, he resurrected. Everybody should be, yes, come on, right? And I didn't have that written down either. (laughs) Conquering death. That's great news. That's why it's called the gospel. Jesus did all that for us, for those that call him Lord and Savior. You see, with all this forgiveness, the beauty in all of this is that we are free. We strive in freedom to live Christ-like lives. And we get to have this desire to grow more in Christ, too. No more being slaves to what the world wants or the culture desires of me. I get to make choices that align with what God wants for me. I don't need to continue like living like I did before I was saved. Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Slavery? Hmm. What do you mean by slavery? I mean like being chained up and made to do things that I don't want to do? Yeah, this is the way of looking at slavery. Sometimes this, this way of looking at slavery may be a different concept for some of us, but we can help. We can be held down or chained up or enslaved to a lot of things that this world tempts us with. We need help dealing with all this, recognizing those areas in our life where we are tempted to take back on that yoke of slavery. And we need to turn it over to Jesus. That last song that we sang is everything. Give up everything. Because a lot of that stuff is holding us down, chaining us. And we are free, and we need to live like it. Amen? So to recap, we start start with our identity. We are a new creation. We are a little Christ. We are God's workmanship. We are forgiven and free. And Ty, since all of this is true, we're good to go, aren't we? (laughs) No need to change at all, all right? Nah, I mean, look... (laughs) If that's my identity, I think we can just all sit in our hammocks. You know, get a good hammock, real comfortable. Lord, I'm yours. Use me as you will, but I'm going to hang out in this hammock. Is that the way it works? Mm. No. If we aren't yet perfect image bearers, practically speaking, we've still got lots of extra stuff clinging to us, surrounding us, stuff that needs to be chipped away every day of our lives. So the question is, are we okay to stay the way we are? And the answer clearly is no. I mean, we're saved. That's, that's certain. And we have Christ's righteousness covering us. We're wearing that new garment. God sees us as perfect. But our sins, past, present, and future, those, those sins that have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus, is that permission to stay the way we are? Mm. 
And I think it helps me when thinking about this topic to ask certain questions of myself. Do I feel completely free? Do, do I feel totally holy? Do I feel like I'm useful to God? Do I feel bold and empowered? Am I living in full alignment with my identity as a Christ follower? Man, that 12,000 pounds is going to land on you, dude. <laughs> I'm glad you were listening. <laughs> Uh, considering all these things, um, is there any further refining that God wants to do in my life? Is my growth something that God desires? And if you aren't sure when you ask yourself that question, is my growth something God desires? Turn to the person next to you and just ask them if, if they think God's done with you yet, right? <laughs> so, well, <laughs> Hey, Ty, Ty, I hear what you're saying here, Ty. I, I really do. Uh, I hear it about growth, but man, you sure did mention a lot about feelings there. Yeah, What's up with a, that? That's a very good point, Chuck. Principle number two is growth, all right? And I think that it's the deal with these two truths that we're dealing with. Like, I'm free. It's a truth. But do I feel free? The chains are gone. Or are they just broken from the wall and I'm still dragging them around with me through life? You know, and that's something that I think we really need to grapple with. If, if, if I don't feel free, the tr it doesn't change the truth that I am free. Mm. Um, and I think this is why that part about identity is so critical. Like if you remember, I'm going to say this later. So this issue of issue number one is hugely important. If you haven't settled issue number one, two, three, and four are going to be a little challenging. Issue number one is the pivotal thing. You need to know who you are in Christ. If you're not confident in that, keep studying it. Come and talk to us. Because without that knowledge and understanding, the rest of your life is handicapped. Okay? Good. That's not in the notes. Anyway, um, this is why identity is so important. We have to keep coming back to it. And I believe that our feelings really, if our feelings don't line up with the truth of our identity, then I think that's a sign that God wants to do some work in us. He wants us to grow. It's that, it's that little voice that we hear from him saying, I'm not done with you yet. Yes, I see he was perfect, but I'm making you holy. All right, so there are quite a few verses in Scripture that talk about growth. Let's just talk over two of them real quick. 2 Peter 3.18 says, Rather, you must grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Christ. And Ephesians 4.11-16, this is a little longer passage, but this is talking about the church. So as a member, as a body of the, um, a member of the body, a piece of the body here, you know, maybe you're an elbow. These are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the overseers, pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Does this sound like growing to become Christ-like to you? Verse 14 goes on to say, Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. But instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way 
more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So if we're to focus on Christ and we're to focus on our growth in Christ, then we have to ask ourselves how serious we are about making these changes. We're a lazy people, right? Especially when it comes to saying, oh, I, I want to become, I want to do hard things. Like that doesn't come naturally to a lot of us. And let me, let me tell you just a little secret. Christ-likeness, not easy. Right? And so I think it's one of those things that we naturally, we don't think I don't want to be like Christ, but do we want to put in the work? We need to grow. Um, we have to ask ourselves how serious we are about making these changes, about growing incrementally. I think that's a big and important thing, incrementally. If we're serious, then we're going to ask, what's the best way for us to make those changes? How do we best grow and make those changes? The first thing is that we grow and we make changes through the power of the triune God, not in our own strength. Something Matt was alluding to last week. This is critical. The natural thing for me to have said would be um, the Holy Spirit, growing through the Holy Spirit and the work that the Holy Spirit does in us. But as I was studying this, I found a lot of verses that say Christ does this and God does this and the Holy Spirit does this. So here's just two of them. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So who do we need to abide in? Christ. Jesus. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. So we see that we don't make these changes on our own. Jesus here is saying that if we don't stay connected to him and to his strength, we can't do anything. We're not supposed to just try harder to push out fruit. Thank you. I just want you to picture that for a moment, right? Like I just don't... S- like joy, peace, patience, kindness, right? You don't just try harder to make those things. Frank, do your vines Come on, peace. try harder Come on, to peace. produce great grapes, right? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a function of the vine and the branches connected to the vine. It's a function of what the plant is attached to. That's how the growth happens. So it's not that we're just to try harder, okay? Like really critical. The triune God is part of that. Christ is part of it. Um, We get to go to God for help. We abide in Christ. We get help from God and from the Holy Spirit. Paul in the book of Ephesians says something that's so powerful about how we make, how we can make these changes and accomplish these things in our lives. In Ephesians 3.20, he says, now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Whose power? works to accomplish these things? God's power and the Holy Spirit, his spirit in us, right? So how do we make these changes and accomplish these things? Through God's mighty power. It's not our own strength. It's the strength of the triune God in partnership with us. The second really important way to bring about growth that we've hit upon and found is in community. Now this is spelled out in multiple verses and I'm just going to quickly go through some of these. Uh, don't forsake the gathering together, Hebrews 10.25. Build one another up, First Thessalonians. 
encourage one another, Hebrews 3, confess your sins to one another, James 5, and as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another in Proverbs 27. So God's word is pretty clear here, right? I mean, we are not to do this on our own. We need God and we need each other. Agreed? Okay. All right. So you decide that you want to grow. You have God and his spirit within you, helping you. But do you have community? If you long for community and you don't have it, you can change that. You know, what we have here today, we have 25 guys in these small groups. It started just a couple years ago. An increasingly honest community that started a couple years ago, two guys having coffee. So it can happen. You can do this. What will it take? It will take intentionality. That's point three. Chuck, take it away. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, principle three is intentionality. And intentionality is being set on and dedicated to an idea. In this case, to our growth. And some of what these two words, identity and growth, have drawn us into has to do with how far we are really willing to go. Are we willing to be vulnerable? Are we willing to let God disrupt our lives? Man, this, this is just hitting me because that song again, that last song, am I willing to give everything, you know? And some of you might be sitting in here going, I can't do it. No, you can't. You're right. <laughs> but you can with his strength, right? you got to remember that, you guys. This life in here, out there, is hard. It's super hard. So you got to be willing to let God disrupt your life. And this is part of, this part gets really hard sometimes. But we have to change. And we all also have to realize that we're not intention, if we're not intentional about this change, the circles that we are spinning in, will continue. And in being a part of these men's groups that has formed over the last couple of years, there is this realization that we all need to recognize who Jesus is in our life. And we need to change to be more like him. And I get it. My identity used to be in whatever I was putting my hands to, whether that be my job or whether that be my family. And I think I had the, the, the number sequence wrong. There's one, two, three. There was, there, how did I have it? I think I had it family, no, I had it work, family, and then God. Let's flip that on its head. God, family, and work. So anyway, that's, that's just a tidbit, and that was free. So, but the idea is that we've got to get there, Right? And to do that, it requires change. And it requires intentional change. And it's all about Jesus. So pouring out, that's what I did. Um, and did I forget that God was supposed to be at the center of all this? Sure did. Now I have to be intentional about changing, growing. Maybe I need to remember this verse that I'm going to say. It's Romans 12 two. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, we didn't get to this revolving door of things that we don't want to do overnight. We just need to take the steps forward out of that revolving door and into being intentional with the changes we are pursuing. Stick with it. Make sure we get people in our lives that challenge us. 
the Holy Spirit helps us with this wise counsel. Some of us might even think that, you know, I'm not going to ask God for more challenges. I got plenty as it is. But I'll tell you what, if you're asking for the right challenges and the right people to come into your life, boom, you're there. You're going to be there with him in that. So we should look at the people that are closest to us and how, ask them how we can maneuver into a better mindset. Like anything, it's going to be hard. I mentioned that already, and we probably need to do it if it's hard. There is growth in all of this, and that is an amazing experience. The release of a mindset of failure, shame, thinking I'm not good enough, or maybe even saying, why do I even exist? That will be released when we make those constant intentional changes. You know, it's interesting that I have said this about our men's groups, about not having an agenda. I think that's a little ploy on, on saying, let's see what the Holy Spirit does in this. But I, I really want to preface that I wasn't trying to make excuses and not prepare what God wants for me to do in those situations. What I was trying to do is let God take it. Let the Holy Spirit work in that. And, and what we've seen in that has been very intentional. So there is an agenda. It's intentionality. And you may be just asking yourself right now, I don't get it. I don't know why I have to do this. Well, you've been intentional about things in your life before. So do it with God. Anyway. Sometimes this growing with intentionality is scary. And tackling this idea of growing in the hard stuff takes stepping out in faith. And we know that Jesus is talking about not being anxious in this upcoming verse. But it also talks about having faith that God's got this. Matthew 6, 30, and this is NLT. And if God cares so wonderfully for the wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Now, stepping out in faith is sometimes the hardest thing we can do, but we need to exercise our faith. Should we do this alone? And Ty already said we should do this in community, so church, I need to ask, who is in your sphere that you're spurred on? Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Hmm. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, talk about being intentional. Sounds like we're supposed to put those little metal things on our boots, you know, and, and some of us and spur ourselves. I, I know I need it at some point in my life, but maybe being intentional will help you get out of a place where you feel stuck in your faith. You know, putting God first and getting folks around you that will speak the truth and not just be yes people. That might be a good place to start. Hard truth can hurt. Maybe some of you have heard that. It's probably what you needed to hear. In our groups, we try to deliver that truth with love. And in hearing this hard truth, we need to see how important it is to identify what needs to change. If seeking to be sanctified, to be set apart for God's use, and knowing what we are aiming at moves us to change, we should be all about that. Here's where the rubber meets the road, you guys. Practical steps when it comes to being intentional in these different areas. And what might some of those steps, practical steps be? Well, pray. Does that seem too obvious? I don't know. I mean, 
when we pray, we're asking about the Holy Spirit to help us first and foremost. That should be the first thing that we dive into. And if we need help with that, let's find somebody and get them in our sphere, guys. And bring a trusted friend into your sphere and tr- have a coffee with them or something. I don't know. We, we can't do this alone. And make a plan. Here's the thing. I, I've done this. Maybe some of you have done this. Make a plan to exercise. Literally, move your body and listen to worship music or get your day started with Jesus one way or another. And identify and share those areas in your life that need a change and get to work. These are some of the examples of ways to get us moving with intentionality. So let's get moving, right? But where are we headed? What's our destination? Ty, what are your thoughts on this? Like I had to read that. Are you guys still with us? Is it making sense? All right. We're getting ready for the final descent here. We're going to land this. Hang on. If identity is all about who we are and who we're created to be, and if growing is our desire, and if intentionality is the way that we're supposed to pursue this growth, then godliness is about who we are becoming. It's our target. It's our destination. So principle number four is godliness. And I want to I make sure that I say, look, our target is not salvation. We are saved. If you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're saved. You, you, you accept it in your heart. You confessed with your mouth that Christ is Lord of your life. So this godliness, we're not pursuing godliness for our salvation, right? We have it already. Okay, it's really important. So this is about sanctification, not salvation. All right? Okay, so Chuck asked where we're heading, what our destination or our objective is. Look, if we don't know where we're going, what our target is, and where we're headed, then how are we going to know when we get off track? So we start with the end in mind. We're pursuing godliness. We aim to be a perfect reflection of Jesus, who was the perfect image of God. And since God already sees us as holy in our Jesus robes, we're actually just living into who we are already. Mm-hmm. That, that kind of blows my mind. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you. Anyway, the Bible says we are to pursue holiness in 1 Timothy 6. It says we are to be set apart and useful to God. Set apart and useful to God is another word for consecration. Do you know what it is to consecrate something? So I might, um, in, in Old Testament times, have, have uh, done a Passover ceremony in my home or, or celebrated the Sabbath in my home. And I'm about to pour the wine into, maybe it's the same cup that we use throughout the week. Well, the cup that we use throughout the week is not holy. It's not set aside and dedicated to God's purposes because we're using it during the week. But if I consecrate it, I make it holy. I perform a ritual over it and consecrate it so that it is now fit to be used for holy things. Does that make sense? We have been consecrated. That's what's happening here. The great news is that um, God has given us everything that we need to live this godly life and to escape the world's corruption. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. If you're wrestling with this concept, memorize this. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, 
the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share in his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. Did you see what that just said? You have everything that you need for living a godly life and for escaping this world's corruption. It doesn't feel like that every day out there, does it? We have to remind ourselves of the truth of scripture. I believe this is evidence of what we've already hit on. We need the triune God and we have him and we need each other and we have him. We have one another, we have in groups, we have small groups all over the church. Find people. The triune God in our community are two of the tools that God uses. So God is the master craftsman, right? He's using these tools to shape us into the little Christ that he created us to be and the one that he already sees. Michelangelo was a master craftsman. I already told you about the other thing he said about David. Well, he was once asked about the sculpting process. And he said, I saw the angel in the marble and I carved until I set him free. Yep, you're so right, Ty. This is exactly what we do together in our groups. And we pray for each other. We look at ourselves. We look at each other. And lovingly, yet firmly, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we identify those parts of ourselves that isn't Jesus. And we work together to carve them away. Sometimes with big old chisels and mallets, and sometimes with files and sandpaper. It's funny that you say it that way, because that's exactly what Michelangelo did. Real short video clip. Check this out. Michelangelo believed that he was a tool of God. He wasn't creating a sculpture from marble. He was simply releasing the figure imprisoned within it. Unfinished work by Michelangelo gives us many insights into his techniques. Most sculptors would create a clay model and then mark up their block of marble to know where to chip. But Michelangelo worked mostly freehand, starting from the front and working back. To sculpt in marble, you need the strength of an athlete and the dexterity of a surgeon. Any slip up can destroy years of work. Michelangelo would start by what is called roughing out, taking the bulk of the weight off with a point chisel and a large mallet, for getting it down to the general shape of the sculpture. Then he'd use a tooth chisel and a smaller hammer for more detailed work in modeling the form. As he needed more details, he'd use finer and finer tooth chisels. He would use a drill to get into the deeper crevices. Then he would refine using various smaller tools, followed by finishing the surface with a tool like the rasp, a sort of file. Finally, he would polish the statue using abrasive pumice stones and then leather until it is smooth and glossy. That's so cool, isn't it? Did you not have any idea? I mean, this is a lost art. Um, there may still be people doing this, but did you know that they used drills, leather, pumice stone? I heard they also use leather and beeswax. Anyway, I just love how this analogy works. It's incredible to think about how much time and effort and dedication and skill and care went into a work of art like David, to the Pieta. Remember, David took three years to carve, but he's marble. We are flesh and bone, we are blood and guts. 
we are soul and spirit, how long will we take? In Ephesians, Paul writes about this transformation that's going on, this sanctification. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander, the unseen the powers in the unseen world, he as the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. And all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Two best words in scripture. But God is so rich in mercy. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us, another mind blower, he seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his kindness, his grace and his kindness towards us, as shown in all that he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It is a gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done or the good things that we're trying to do with each other. None of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. It's pretty easy for us to see this statue of David as a marble masterpiece, but what's harder for us is to see ourselves this way, right? But what did that passage just say? That word in verse 10 is masterpiece. In Greek, the word is poema. It means work of art. It's the word we get poem from. You are that poem. Westside family, if you hear and you retain one thing this morning, hear and understand this powerful truth. If you have placed your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ, then God sees you right now as a masterpiece, a work of art that he, the master creator, has created. And know this, God is no amateur sculptor. He is a master craftsman who has already begun to shape you into a masterpiece. He sees potential in us that we cannot grasp. He has given us everything we need for our lives to reflect his son, Jesus. He will use us to do more than we imagine if we allow him to work in us and through us through this process called sanctification. Yeah, so don't make a mistake of thinking you are just a sinner saved by grace that God doesn't have an amazing plan for you, that he can't use you any way he wants, and that those ways won't be powerful. For starters, he's placed you here now in this body. God is here, and the potential for community is here. Now that you know your identity, the question is, will you desire to grow? Will we be intentional about it? And godliness, godliness sounds impossible, but it isn't a daunting task when you realize that growing towards it isn't done in your own strength. It's done in God's strength. And he's given us everything we need to live a godly life. And ultimately, it's his job to complete this work. Scripture says, and God will be faithful to complete the good work that he started in you. Mm -hmm. 
So let's step out. Let's be encouraged. Let's be bold. We are God's masterpieces. And let's see what happens when a bunch of masterpieces get together pursuing godly lives. We are the light of the world. We should live like it. Amen? Amen. Amen.